Welcome to the Wing Chun Podcast, the Sifu's Stories, the place where the world's most renowned Sifus share their stories and insights. I am your host, Bogdan Brosho. We have Sifu Alex Richter, who is a martial arts fanatic, author, and he also and he's also the co-host of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast that I seriously recommend you check out. He went from teaching at a rented dance studio to developing the biggest Wing Chun center in New York City. Sifu Alex has been featured on Vice, the Discovery Channel, NBC, PBS, Black Belt Magazine, Kung Fu, Tai Chi Magazine, Wing Chun Illustrated, and Harper's Bazaar. Sifu Alex, can you please tell everyone who's listening a bit about your journey? How did you start training martial arts? How did you get in contact with Wing Chun? What were your challenges? Sure, absolutely. Well, I just want to say thank you, Bogdan, for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited about this. Uh, any chance I get to talk about Wing Chun, which is pretty much all I do anyway, but when people ask me to do it, I'm always really happy uh, because awesome. this is probably the one thing I'm qualified to do in my entire life. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, I've always been into martial arts since I was very young. I started with uh, karate when I was eight years old after a bully knocked out my tooth and I was really upset. I couldn't do anything. I asked my mom to uh, sign me up for karate lessons because at that time, the, the movie Karate Kid was very big. Yeah. Uh, I did that really intently. I loved it. I was a total fanatic. And then as the story goes, I was homesick uh, from school one day. And my father went to the video store back in the days where they used to be rental video stores in the 80s <laughs> and uh, brought me uh, uh, or rented the film Enter the Dragon for me to watch. And yeah. I just remember that moment as an eight or nine year old watching that movie, which is not the most appropriate film for an eight or nine year old, but I'm very happy I was able to see it. And it was that moment where it, it was like. I wanted to do Kung Fu. I wanted to be Bruce Lee. And I, I was very dissatisfied with doing karate at that time because there was just something about Bruce Lee, his personality, the way he moved that, and, and, and just how cool Kung Fu was. And, yeah, and it was yeah. always like the really stiff karate guys in the gi and then the really cool, fluid Kung Fu Bruce Lee there. And, and I was like, that's what I want to do. So that kind of made a shift in my journey. I had to stick with karate and later Taekwondo because there was no Kung Fu or Wing Chun where I grew up in, in New Jersey. And uh, eventually, when I was a teenager, I uh, my family relocated to Seattle and I was able to start practicing Wing Chun out there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's been nonstop ever since. I mean, I guess I formally started Wing Chun when I was 15. Um, and then I, I started doing the Learn Ting system of Wing Chun when I was about 19 or 20. So uh, it's been uh, it's been quite a while now, and and you know not not to date myself, but I'm I'm gonna turn forty this year. So uh, I've I've been doing Wing Chun for a few years at this point. So that's the kind of rough story of how I you know, uh, how I kind of got it to. I, it. I'm interviewing you guys. I I had uh, Sifu Mark Phillips. I had um, uh, Nima King and um, um, Jim Roslando as well. I feel like a spring chicken compared to you guys. You know, you've been teaching for like ages now. Yeah, well, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize that I'm I'm a little bit older than I look, and this year is going to be the 15 year anniversary of my school. And when I look back uh, on it, I, I really I, I don't even know where the time went because yeah. it just seems. I remember coming back to the states from Germany after I, I trained at Langenzell Castle, and and 
and being totally wet behind the ears and, and totally inexperienced and started teaching in dance studios and, and trying, you know, my first day teaching, like two people showed up and I was so excited that <laughs> anybody even came. And then oh, to yeah. think that now I have a two floor school in, in Midtown Manhattan, 15 years later, it's a, uh, I wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't have imagined it. Yeah, absolutely. I remember those days as well when, when I opened, um, I opened my school first time in Rome because I was living in Rome, and uh, so so many times when I was coming to the school and nobody would show up. <laughs> there's like no, there's nothing more depressing than having a kung fu school and having nobody uh, coming to school. You know, so yeah, I I can totally relate to that. Yeah, it was a it was a harsh wake up call for me, and and something that I, I learned later in martial arts marketing is the most unreliable people in the martial arts world are martial artists themselves. You know, because they everyone will tell you, "Oh, I'm going to show up, I'll be your student, I'll be all this," and they're not the ones who end up coming. They they just like we call it talk foo, right? They always yeah, say yeah, they're going to yeah, come, yeah. say they're going to train. It's normally like the 35 year old businessman who never did martial arts a day in his life because yeah. he wasn't allowed to when he was a kid yeah. as an yeah. adult finally decides he or she wants to do martial arts and then loves it. And that person becomes your most loyal student. And the people who've been doing martial arts for years and years and years, they, they will talk your ear off, send you long emails, blah, 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 blah. But when it actually comes time for them to come down, oftentimes Absolutely. it's nothing more than talk. I have some, some friends as well who every time they see me say, yeah, I want to come to your school. I say, you've been threatening me for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can just come. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, awesome. no, I, to I totally, uh, totally know that. When I, um, when I started teaching in 2002, it was a very interesting time. At, at that time, I was uh, still a member of uh, Sifu Learning Tanks International Wing Chun Association. And, um, Shortly before I started teaching, the chief instructor for the U.S. was a guy named Sifu Imin Bostepe. Mm -hmm. He was like the U.S. chief instructor for uh, Sifu Learning Ting. And then in 2001, he left and he started his own association. So then there was like a void and New York didn't have a school for Learning Ting. So that's where yeah. I came in. Sifu Learning Ting offered me the position to be the new New York representative. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing was then all of the instructors at that time could learn directly from Sifu Learning Ting. So we didn't have a middleman anymore. And I remember because I was essentially at that time the new guy. Mm -hmm. um, and I was the guy who was representing Sifu Learning Ting. I got scores and scores of emails from people like, oh, finally a learn real Learning Ting guy. I want to learn from you, blah, blah. And I remember before I started teaching, I had like, almost 60 emails from people who are yeah. like, I'm going to come and show up on your first day. And I had two people show up. And the two people who showed up on my first day, one was like a really dainty, fragile girl. She was um, a, a Bulgarian girl, really dainty, really fragile, maybe like 90 pounds soaking wet. And the other guy was this guy with really thick glasses who could barely see. And he was extremely <laughs> uncoordinated. And the funny thing is the two of them stayed with me for years. Yeah, and all yeah, of these yeah. so-called, you know, martial art guys or whatever didn't even bother showing up yeah, when I yeah. told them, you know, where to go. So it was uh, it, it was an interesting lesson for me and, and, and uh, glad that uh, glad I went through those hard lumps very early on in my career. You know, before when people would stop coming or maybe they would would tell me that they're going to come and they, they wouldn't show up. I feel like, you know, what's wrong with these people? Are they crazy? But now it's just like, um, you know, these people could, could be doing anything, right? Watching the game, eating pizza at home, like 
basically anything else than just come showing up for class, right? And now after having these experiences, I just feel so much gratitude for just, just to see them in, in class, you know? Right. Absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, well, uh, we, yeah. we, we took, uh, we, we took a marketing concept from Starbucks. Uh, yeah. And, and the concept is called the third place. And uh -huh. basically everyone spends time essentially in three places. You have yeah, home, yeah, yeah. you have work. And then there's like a third place where you spend your time and money. And for a lot of people, that's a bar or that might be the club or yeah, maybe yeah, they don't yeah. even have a third place. Yeah. And Starbucks has tried to make themselves a third place where you can go, you can lounge, you have internet, all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that you spend $100 worth of coffee every time you go there, but you go there consistently because it becomes your place. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. when I realized that if I did something like this with my school, where when the students came, like our school is two floors, but it's basically open in sometimes in the morning, afternoon, but mm -hmm, in, in mm -hmm. the afternoon until late, we leave the school open. So even when students are not coming for class, they come here just to hit the bags or they come yeah. here just to train. And sometimes students will even come here just to do homework because they love being here. And that was the big shift for me where I realized it wasn't just about teaching them punching and kicking and Kung Fu or whatever. Yeah. I We had actually created a community that people really love coming to and it kind of created a life of its own. So even when I leave New York for a month, my assistants teach this. People are so posting on social media. Mm -hmm. The school does fine without me <laughs> at this point. So that's when I realized that it had actually become bigger than me and, and was very grateful for that moment. That is so cool. For the people listening right now, if you are running your own Wing Chun school, this is a very, very powerful tip to or concept to take in. Um, a lot of people are very skeptical of uh, marketing or using marketing, especially when you're teaching um, Kung Fu. For example, when I was talking last time with uh, uh, Sifu Tommy Berling uh, from Germany about, uh, about marketing and why it's so important to use the, these ideas. And um, I think a lot of that, maybe um, from what I know from your uh, story, maybe a lot of that came... W was that a reason that you had to split from the organization? Well, uh, not really. Uh, I mean, actually, uh, for people who may not know, uh, Leung Ting in kind of the world of Yip Man Wing Chun, for lack of a better term, uh, was definitely one of the guys who really promoted it a lot, especially starting in the 70s. And he created a very systematic way of teaching and promotion and things like that, which was very effective. It also had its downside as well. Um, but he was definitely one of the more aggressive uh, marketers under, uh, uh, you know, who, to, to come out of the, 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 the Yip Man line. And mm -hmm. of course, that's a double edged sword because you have guys, especially in Chinese Kung Fu, like you don't get it so much in karate or even MMA or any of those. But yeah, Kung yeah. Fu people are like, Everybody wants to find that master who learned in a cave on a mountain somewhere, and he's just going to teach that one student secretly in the back of a Chinese restaurant. And then right. that is going to mean that that's the most legitimate training you can get because it's not on a large scale. And unfortunately, first of all, it's very hard to find that. Second of all, I don't even think that that's necessarily a good thing. And the third point is... I think that's actually what's killed Chinese Kung Fu because the idea that if you are not, um, if you teach more than two people or whatever, you're like some kind of commercial sellout or whatever yeah. is actually really 
silly because, first of all, Wing Chun is a very practical style. So you need to practice your qi sao or your sparring against different types of partners. Somebody who's big, somebody who's short, somebody who's fast, somebody who has a taekwondo background, somebody who has a wrestling background. And you're not going to get this divergent um, or I should say this this kind of diversity when your sifu is teaching two people in a basement somewhere. Absolutely. And 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 what happens if your one training partner gets a new job and has to move across uh, uh, the the country and now suddenly you don't even have a training partner. So the 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 problem is that um, the the idea that you're only going to learn see, that it's going to be passed on from one sifu to one student doesn't even necessarily produce the best results in terms mm -hmm. of being a competent, well-rounded martial artist. But Kung Fu people are so afraid that if you put out flyers or you market yourself or whatever, that suddenly the Kung Fu has automatically degraded because you are yeah. marketing yourself. And this is ridiculous. You don't have that problem in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They market the hell out of it, and those guys are really good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but somehow in Wing Chun, it's not real unless, you know, you learn from a, from a, a cook who was secretly a Wing Chun master who learned in Hong Kong, and he'll teach you in the back just for, you know, shining and, his shoes or something, and he, right? he's using basically the Wing Chun knives to chop everything, right? Exactly. That's how you yeah, recognize right, them. Of course. That's how you knew that he had real Kung Fu skill. I could tell by the way he cut the pork that this was a real <laughs> Kung Fu master, right? And that's just kind of ridiculous and kind of outdated. My students can come... And we have students, look, I have students who train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, who train in MMA, and they do Wing Chun. They tell me they do Wing Chun because they love it. And for me, and for them, Wing Chun is self-defense. Yeah. And MMA and the kickboxing is just for, uh, you know, learning other stuff or sport or whatever. And I have no problem with that. As a result, those guys, they really know how to kick and punch and grapple. Yeah. They make they make better training partners for our Wing Chun students who are trying to learn to fight against it. Especially and for the you, girls. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. And you don't get that with the, uh, you know, my Sifu only taught one person ever and I'm the only person who ever learned from him. I mean, when I hear that, I roll my eyes because it just tells me, oh, that means you're not very experienced. <laughs> or, or you like to be lonely. Exactly. exactly. It's nothing wrong with being like lonely, by the way, guys. If you if you like yourself, it's uh, it's probably a very good time to have. <laughs> but well. unfortunately, with a with, you know, it's different if you're practicing a martial art that's mainly form based. Mm -hmm. Your sifu teaches you X number of forms, and you can go out in the woods and practice those those forms. Come back, and your sifu can correct you. But Wing Chun, if you don't practice qi sao, lat sao, guo sao, have somebody coming at you, pushing you, grabbing you, doing whatever. You're just kind of flapping your hands in the air and thinking you're doing something, and that's not really the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, you you had um, experience in karate. You were training kickboxing before. What was the appeal for you um, to start training Wing Chun besides, um, besides the Bruce Lee movie? Which... Well, um. Well, yeah. Okay. So I, I always had, so obviously I had the attraction to Bruce Lee, which made it a lot easier for me to transition. But when I, I got my black belt in Taekwondo, when I was about 14, 15 years old, mm -hmm. and I was really good with my kicks, very flexible and uh, could move very well. But um, in a couple times where I had to defend myself, like, and what I mean, defend myself, I mean, like, you know, childhood scraps with your buddies. I'm not yeah, talking about yeah, like yeah. epic street fights or what, like, you know, just like your buddies, like, oh, you do Taekwondo. And I remember when I was like 13, um, somebody was like, oh, I heard you do Taekwondo. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he just put me in a headlock and brought me to the ground and I couldn't do anything. Yeah. And I just remember feeling so frustrated and so powerless at that moment. And I also realized that um, 
if somebody had really good use of their hands yeah. and I couldn't keep them at distance with my feet, I was in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So I, I, I knew by the time I was 14 years old that like my hands totally sucked. I couldn't, I, you know, like my punch defense was just to keep the guy away with my kick. You know mm -hmm, what I mean? Like mm -hmm, get mm -hmm. away from me, get away from yeah, me. And, yeah, and yeah. That, that didn't always work. And I walked into, it's interesting. The first Wing Chun I did was not traditional Wing Chun. It was actually non-classical Wing Chun. My mm -hmm. Sifu, uh, at the time, my very first instructor, his name was Sifu Johan. He, I'm still, actually, I just talked to him on the phone the other day. He was a student of a Seattle-based instructor who had learned uh, from both James DeMille and uh, Ed Hart, who were two of Bruce Lee's first students in Seattle. Okay. So the Wing Chun they taught, they didn't even do the Wing Chun forms. It was mm -hmm. already, mm -hmm. it was like what you can almost call pre-Jeet Kune Do. It was what Bruce Lee was teaching in Seattle before he went to California. So it was closer to Wing Chun than Jeet Kune Do, but it wasn't quite traditional Wing Chun either. Yeah. So that's why Jesse Glover would call it like non-classical Kung Fu or whatever. And so the first Wing Chun I was exposed to was actually that style of Wing Chun, the Seattle period Wing Chun, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I did that for three years. So um, I had a fairly decent base in, wing, in the Wing Chun that Bruce Lee taught at that time, which is why... Um, I feel somewhat, um, well, I, I don't feel like I know more than others, but I feel that I have a very good understanding of what Bruce Lee thought mm -hmm. Wing Chun was based mm -hmm. on what I learned from those guys. And so that was my first introduction. You, and then I remember suddenly learning punches and defending swing punches and hooks and people grabbing you. And I was like, yeah. wow, this is exactly what I was missing. And I loved it. I really loved it. Could you share with us what you feel was Bruce Lee's idea of Wing Chun? Well, um, I believe Bruce Lee's idea of Wing Chun, now this isn't to, you know, Wing Chun, Bruce Lee's kind of a funny topic for Wing Chun people because on one hand, he's the reason, one of the reasons why our art is very famous, right? Because, you know, everyone knows, oh, Bruce Lee learned Wing Chun from Yip Man, blah, 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 blah. But on the other hand, Bruce Lee was also very critical of Wing Chun uh, and classical martial arts in general. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Some people kind of really uh, deify Bruce Lee is like, you know, everything he does was great and, and he did Wing Chun, so Wing Chun must be great. Or he said Wing Chun sucks, so Wing Chun must suck. So yeah. you have kind of like these conflicting stories going on. But in, in my opinion, and this isn't, uh, and I'm still a huge Bruce Lee fan. I love, I, uh, actually two weeks ago, the Museum of Modern Art here in New York showed all of Bruce Lee's films restored in 4K. Nice. It was amazing. They had, I saw Way of the Dragon, which is my favorite, absolutely perfectly restored in the original Cantonese. It was beautiful. So I still, I'm, I'm, as getting, an almost, goose, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps. Yes, it totally. See, I, I get the same goosebumps <laughs> as a 40-year-old guy for stuff I've been watching since I was a kid. So I, I have to say that I'm still a huge Bruce Lee fan. Yeah. Having said that, I believe Bruce Lee's uh, understanding of Wing Chun was somewhat limited i'm not going to say completely limited i think that he was more intuitive than most people yeah. and even if he only was exposed to a certain portion of the system what he was able to do with that was a lot more than people who supposedly have the whole system talking about oh well bruce lee didn't even learn the knives or the pole and i know the knives and the pole yeah but bruce lee would still knock you seven ways from sunday with the the knives in your hands you know Absolutely. what i mean <laughs> like yeah. so 
so you also have to realize the context in which Bruce Lee learned Wing Chun. Mm -hmm. One, he learned it in a, during a time period where Yip Man himself was not teaching very regularly because uh, Yip Man in, in that very period of the mid to late 50s was going through certain personal problems. Mm -hmm. He was going through personal problems. Uh, w w one of them was, was with a woman, all right, who was causing him a lot of issues. Let's, I don't believe it. it. No, that to, never to, happened. To, to, yeah, to put it mildly, right? So as a result, uh, Grandmaster Yip Man handed over a lot of the teaching to his senior students, most notably uh, Wong Son Leung, but uh, other ones as well. Yeah. So um, the students who learned at that time period were, uh, although they called Yip Man Sifu, were not necessarily learning directly from him. And the other thing you have to realize is that whether Bruce Lee learned Wing Chun for two years, three years, four years, or whatever, he still learned it as a teenager. Yeah. And for people who understand Wing Chun, regardless of lineage, Wing Chun is a martial art where there's a lot of um, kind of theoretical practice that you need to do in your head to understand it. And I don't know how much a teenager fully appreciates the aspects that like, look, I see how Wing Chun is cool for a teenager because I was a teenager who did Wing Chun. When I was a teenager, I like the the speed, the explosiveness, yeah, the yeah, cool yeah. movements, like the cool stuff you learned in Wing Chun. But I didn't really appreciate centerline or angling or 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 the more in the more in-depth theories. I was like, yeah, 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 that's cool, but come at me and I'm gonna punch you and paxo and lapso and like I just wanted to do that. Yeah. And your understanding and of Wing Chun matures as you get older. And Bruce Lee's Wing Chun journey to a certain degree, although his journey never really ended, but his Wing Chun journey kind of ended when he was 18 years old. So yeah. I don't know what what level of understanding he really had at the time that he was 18 and how much he had developed later based on what he was missing in Wing Chun. Like he, Bruce Lee famously said Wing Chun only had one type of punch, which isn't true. Bruce Lee said Wing Chun doesn't have that much footwork, which isn't true. If you learn the wooden dummy, you know we have all sorts of footwork. Yeah. So... um so it, again, it's kind of a mixed bag. So it's difficult to say. I don't know. Uh, I, I I would love to have had a conversation with him and really understood. I think he knew more than people think he knows. Yeah. And certain things he he I I'm convinced he just didn't know. So it's mm -hmm. very difficult to say. I think it's also an interesting point of view because a lot of people feel that look, you started with Wing Chun, you should die with Wing Chun. Right. Things change. You know, um, your needs change. What the circumstances change? I think for for uh, somebody who was like cut off from from his training, he did an incredible job. Like, you know, absolutely. Considering what he had, and I mean, if if you gave anybody the the limited tools that Bruce Lee had by the time he was eighteen, and then you sent them off to a foreign country to see what they would do with it. Yeah, I don't think you would find anybody who who had developed themselves to certain degree to to the degree that Bruce Lee did for sure. And when it comes to development, I think a lot of people uh they, they don't give uh Grandmaster Yip Man enough credit. They really believe because you have such a conservative faction within Yip Man Wing Chun that really believe because they do not change the methods that Yip Man taught them in 1952, yeah. that they are really teaching like the gospel of Yip Man. But what they failed to realize is that by 1954, Yip Man had already changed some things. By 1959, by 1965, he was constantly re-editing the wooden dummy forms. He was constantly making smaller edits to 
the regular forms. He was changing training methods. He sometimes explained more. He sometimes explained less. And anybody who believes that there's that he really only did it one way and they are doing it the proper way, really all they're doing is teaching a time capsule of what Yip Man taught in a very specific time period. And I believe that he was a lot more forward thinking and progressive than his own students give him credit for. And this mm -hmm. is kind of a very funny, it's a phenomenon I've noticed in martial arts. And maybe if I tell it to you, you, you might agree with it, you might disagree with it. But if you look around, um, it, it's an interesting thought experiment. Mm -hmm. I'm of the opinion that any teacher who is relatively progressive, yeah. maybe even a little bit um, too loose in their teaching methods, sometimes they teach this, sometimes they teach that. Let's just say like the most extreme example, uh, on Monday, the Sibu teaches you this thing, on, on Wednesday, decides to teach you something totally different. Like a Sibu is just kind of very progressive and liberal and not very strict, all right? Normally, that Sibu students will be extremely conservative because they're always going to feel that their Sifu was a little too loosey-goosey and they want to kind of systemize it because they feel that that was missing. So normally a very progressive Sifu will have extremely conservative students. That's interesting. A, mm -hmm. a very mm -hmm. conservative Sifu who mm. just does everything by the book, never changes everything, says it's yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. like this. Oftentimes their students will be a little bit more liberal because they wish that Sifu had given them a little more freedom to play around with the things they learn. Mm -hmm. So it seems that every generation, it's not just in Wing Chun, I've noticed it in Honga, Choi Lei Fat, uh, Eagle Claw, all like the, the big iconic styles. Mm -hmm. Normally there's always a generation jump from conservative to liberal, conservative to liberal. Um, of course, there are exceptions. Sometimes extremely conservative Sifus will also produce extremely conservative students. Yeah. Um, as we, we certainly see that in Wing Chun. Uh, for example, um, Moyat Wing Chun is extremely conservative, and many of the followers of Moyat are also relatively conservative as well. So th there's definitely exceptions to that. Mm -hmm. But I always feel that it, uh, as a general rule, you you kind of see this this change every generation, it's, right? It's actually something that I noticed in my school as well, because I'm definitely in the first category of, okay, hmm, I'm going to go into school and feel the situation. Okay, today I think we need this, and then we have to put this and put this. In. You know, and from my point of view, it all adds up, right? But from a student's perspective, they don't see the big, the bigger picture where they are, exactly. which is natural. And they're telling me, like, can we have a bit more structure? Like, you know, <laughs> know what we have to do every every training and stuff like that. So yeah, I can totally feel that need, and um, they're helping me out a lot on this uh, aspect because I'm, like, you know, sure. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's totally understandable. I, I'm a little bit of both. We we teach extremely structured in New York City because, well, I have like 400 students. You have to have a structure, otherwise yeah. the thing falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. So we have we have lesson cards, and, and every week there's like a lesson, and then they get the cards checked yeah. off. And when they've been through all the lessons, then we do a review. And if they yeah, can yeah, do yeah, it, yeah, they, yeah. they start learning the next material. You have to do that because when you have such a big school or whatever, but in my class – which I call my inner circle class, they learn the standard stuff from my assistants. But when they come to my class, <laughs> I teach them a little bit more according. Like I'm more like the chef that 
doesn't tell you you need a tablespoon of salt. I'm like, you need this a little bit more and then it's perfect, right? Yeah. And and so so they get that from me. So they get both perspectives, a highly structured perspective from their Sifu, who is my student. And then they come to my class and then they get like tweaks and a little bit more of the awesome. slightly more artistic way of doing it. So uh, I think the a balance of both is definitely the way to Absolutely. go. Absolutely. And I believe that, you know, uh, each person should, should use their strong point. If uh, your strong point is organization, then by all means. You know? um, Absolutely. I always ask this uh, for every interview. What does Wing Chun mean to you today? Uh, well... Wing Chun for me is my life. It's very difficult for me to separate Wing Chun from me because it, it's become my identity. Mm-hmm. And not, not in the way where I feel controlled by it, but, but in the way that I, I kind of filter everything I do in my life through yeah. Wing Chun. Like Wing Chun is for me is a lot more than just a way of defending myself or fighting or whatever. It's a, it's a philosophy of interaction. When you deal with difficult people, learning kind of when to push and pull, when when to give way, when to go forward. This kind of very nuanced way of interacting uh, has been greatly a, a pro- improved upon in my life based on my understanding of Wing Chun. And so for me, it it's kind of present in everything I do, how I market the school, how I interact with people, how I practice, how I train. And so um, at this point, I... I I don't know what my life would be like without it because it's 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 separate. It's like uh, I remember there was an old interview with Hicks and Gracie and, and he was on the beach. I think it was in it might have been in the choke documentary. And he says, you know, if you take away jujitsu, it's like you're taking away my legs. Yeah. And I, I, I feel the same same thing for me in Wing Chun. It's 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 absolutely one and the same. Awesome. I, I think a lot of people listening can resonate deeply with uh, with that. Um. Can you share with us what is your favorite Wing Chun related story? <laughs> um, well, my, it, it's interesting because before the podcast, you, 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 you dropped that bomb on me and I was like, oh, man, <laughs> because I have so many different stories from my role as a teacher and like, like finding out that I've helped the students mm-hmm. in ways that I would never imagine yeah. from students being able to defend themselves, my own personal training. But um, I was thinking about it and I have a... I suppose it's maybe not directly a Wing Chun story. It's kind of one, mm-hmm. um, but maybe it's a little bit more. It's something that I learned that might be able to help people out there, especially people who um, might get caught up in big political organizations. Like there, there are certain bigger Wing Chun schools that yeah. have a lot of politics. Yeah. And usually the bigger schools, whether you're talking about Lang Tang, Wong San Lang, all these bigger ones, they have politics because the Wing Chun is pretty good. I mean, nobody would care if the Wing Chun sucked, right? Yeah. So yeah. obviously some people may want to stay with these organizations because they really want to learn the Kung Fu, right? So I remember my, my good friend, Dr. Mark Cheng, he's an editor for Black Belt Magazine, a very um, diverse and accomplished martial artist in his own right. Um, he's, uh, also the, uh, the, the godfather for, for my daughter, uh, one of my very close friends, one of the few guys that I really call brother. Um, he is a very close student of Dan and Asanto and he's also Dan and Asanto's doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he fixes up Dan and Asanto and from all the training. Right. Nice. And, um, I remember ever having a conversation with, with Doc and he told me something very interesting that Dan and Asanto had told him. And I realized that it completely applied to my life in learning Wing Chun. And as you know, Dan Asanto has um, essentially made a career of 
learning all sorts of different martial arts and kind of taking the best things and putting them into an integrated whole for, yeah. you know, his way of doing Jeet Kune Do. For those who and, don't know, uh, Daniel Santo is actually one of Bruce Lee's first uh, students. Yeah, he's yeah. he's one of the three guys that Bruce Lee certified to teach Jeet Kune Do and still teaches and very prolific and really an amazing martial artist. He, you know, some people give him flack because he does so many different things. But the yeah. amazing thing is he's legitimately good at all of these things because he's really gone deep into many of these different martial arts. So, uh, so Dan Inosanto told Doc Chang something very interesting. He says, you know what? If you really want to learn the essence of a system, you really want to learn uh, the best version you can of something, never go to the number one guy. Always go to the number three guy. And I thought at first that was like really kind of an odd thing to say because yeah. why would you not want to go to the number one guy? Yeah. And the, the justification was very interesting. He says, well, because oftentimes the number one guy, the guy who either founded the system or the guy who is the successor of the system, mm -hmm. normally they're already kind of established. So their motivation in teaching might not be there because they already have their name. They're already yeah. regarded as yeah. so-and-so. Yeah. So it can be hit or miss whether they really want to teach you or not. I mean, it's not to say that it would be bad to learn from them, but you never really know. Yeah. The number two guy, the guy who's second in command, is normally an ass kisser who's trying to get that number one position. So that person, his number one goal is not about teaching the next generation. His number one goal is vying for that number one position when the Sifu, Guru, whatever, passes away yeah. or retires or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The number three guy knows that he's not going to become the successor and is usually there because he loves the art and is normally the most skillful and willing to explain it and pass it on. Now, being being that that comes from a guy who has experienced learning multiple martial arts from all sorts of different people, um, I find it interesting. And Sivu, I can speak for the Leung Ting organization because that was the one that I came from. Yeah. Sivu Leung Ting is very hot and cold as an instructor. Mm -hmm. If you have him in a good mood, he's happy. He yeah, had his morning coffee. The waitress didn't piss him off. Yeah, he yeah, will yeah. give you a great lesson that day. And if you spend some time with him and you get him on a roll, he'll tell you stories and he'll be sweet and he'll give you everything. The next day, if he wakes up and the waitress who served his coffee gave him kind of a weird look, you will have the worst day of training you had in your entire life. So he's very hit or miss. A lot of his extremely high level, and it doesn't mean it has to be the actual number three guy. We mean like number two types and number three types. There could be multiple number three types, you know? So... It's always the guys who are very high level but have no political interest in being at the top. Yeah. They're usually the ones who will stick hands with you, teach you, explain, show you stuff. And it's absolutely true. And I've had the, the privilege of learning from number one types, number two types, and number three types. And in my opinion, the number three types are actually the ones who taught me the best because they were the most motivated to show because yeah. they didn't have a name to stand on. Yeah. They had to stand on what they gave you. And I always found that, and that made me understand what Sivu Inosanto was teaching. And I think it's a very powerful lesson. Yeah, absolutely. I had this experience as well because I was training karate before. And then when I started Wing Chun, I was just so passionate about um, about Wing Chun. And I wanted results quickly. And one of the things that I recommend in, in the um, ebook 
that I'm recommending on Addicted to Wing Chun is train with the best, you know, just go there and ask for help. And the best can absolutely be, doesn't have to be one person, right? It can be two, three, four, top, top five, top five. And just see absolutely. who you enjoy most. Cool. Yeah. Um, how do you feel, how do you feel the Wing Chun community is, um, evolving and what could we do each uh, each of us personally to contribute more to Wing Chun and to uh, the community? Um, well, I think it's actually an interesting conversation I had with uh, Jim Rosalando, who you also had on your podcast, who's a very good friend of mine, uh, and uh, uh, Sifu Phil Romero. Sifu Phil Romero is a student of Hawkins Chan. Mm-hmm. And we had a very interesting conversation. Sifu Phil Romero, he, he watched me teach uh, a class and he came up to me and he goes, he said something very interesting. He says, you know what? I like the new generation of Wing Chun guys better than the old generation. He said, because the old generation, they were kind of like the number two guys that I was just explaining. Yeah, they yeah. were all very political and 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 they all like to be very divisive. Like they were the only guys who learned it in their version of Wing Chun that they learned from their Sifu is the only yeah, one. Yeah, and he yeah. says, This like our generation, like like my generation and 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 definitely yourself included, like we are more about improving the art, improving ourselves, improving understanding. And while I certainly will always have a learn, a heavy learning influence to what I teach, I also look and see what other people are doing and see if there's anything I can do to improve. And I, I feel that a lot of people in our generation are the same. We can kind of look back because now we have the internet, we have all this information at our fingertips and we can go, okay, I really like, like for you, you really like the Wong Sun Lung, Gary Lam system or whatever. I really like the Learning Ting system. But we can look at what other people are doing and going, okay, can we improve training methods? I don't need to borrow your way of doing Bong Cell, but maybe there's a drill you could do that I can modify to my way of doing it that will make my students better. And we are more open to that. And as a result, I can sit down with, you know, I have friends from the William Chung lineage, from uh, from Wong Sun Leung lineage, from Choi Sun Teen, Leung Sun. Every we can all sit and and one of one of somebody that I consider a good friend is Sifu Wan Kam Leung. Uh, I I've met with him here. I've met with him in Hong Kong, and I always have a great time when I talk to him. And his Wing Chun is very different from mine. Yeah. But there's there's no problem with me sitting and talking to him and respecting him. He's a very great master. He's highly highly skillful. And I think that the future, the the last generation, they were less willing to do that. And if they did sit and talk to somebody afterwards, they were always like this. So I think this generation, because of the Internet age in general, we are a little bit more open. We're a little bit less political. But on the other hand, Facebook, YouTube still allows people to troll and and kind of be prickish and stuff like that in a way that wasn't available to the guys a generation or two ago. Mm -hmm. So it still exists. But I think the general vibe has changed because Wing Chun people realize less people care because everyone's talking about MMA and jujitsu nowadays. If we want Wing Chun to be relevant, we have to stop all this bickering because it just makes us look idiotic. A, a jiu-jitsu guy doesn't give two shits about Wing Chun and suddenly two Wing Chun guys are arguing about the Bong Cell should be this way or this way or this way or this way and they're going, what the hell are those guys even talking about, right? I remember, so I, I think, yeah. There, there was like this top 10 uh, self-defense martial arts on um, on an MMA website or something like that. And then I came to Wing Chun, to the Wing Chun uh, section and uh, the guy was saying, I don't really know much about Wing Chun but if you check online, somebody's going to post a video and then 
you're gonna have like 100 guys arguing if it's the real Wing Chun or if it's not the real Wing Chun. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's, it's the joke I, I tell my students is, how many Wing Chun students does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is 100. One to screw it in and 99 to say that's not how Sifu showed it. That's <laughs> basically how it always is. And, and it's a problem because Wing Chun is – is a martial art that has to be adapted to the individual. I mean, even if you practice Wong Sun Leung, Wing Chun, Gary Lam, Wing Chun, Leung Ting, Leung Ting, whatever, um, you are you are taking the template of a Wing Chun that's already been interpreted by one individual, mm -hmm. and you have to modify it for yourself. So if you're taller, shorter, stockier, whatever, it's it, yeah. it has to be a little bit different. Yeah. But the problem is somebody can look at your expression of the Bong Sao you learned from your Sifu and say it doesn't look just like the Sifus, but that's still missing the point. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, exactly. and, and I think that, that, that is the, uh, that is the issue that Wing Chun has. It's a traditional martial art. So you have all the problems of traditional martial arts that are attached to it, like all this baggage, mm -hmm. but it's also a progressive martial art in that we are really trying to apply this against somebody who's really coming at us. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's kind of marrying both of those that's always difficult for traditional martial arts people to do and it's yeah. kind of the challenge we have as sivus of wing chun now in the modern age to really marry the two of these together and uh, make wing chun more relevant to the masses yeah i i feel somehow we're on the right path because uh looking at the on the wing chun forums online the mood has changed a lot in, in the, absolutely uh, absolutely I remember posting a video and then having a lot of comments. Oh, that's not how you do a Tanzo, a Bongzo, and so on and so forth. And now you just have people um, supporting you, or if they're giving feedback, they're giving constructive or more constructive uh, feedback. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, I think a, a lot of a, a great contribution is also the videos. For example, how you videoed uh, made those the videos for um, um, for Howcast for Howcast and those tutorials. You know, a hundred years from now, people are going to look at my stuff, your stuff, everybody's stuff, and they're going to say, okay, that's how they used to do it. Does it still right. work? Does it still apply today? You know, that's how, that's how Sifu showed it. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think the, the, the beautiful thing about the digital age is we can now start to, uh, we can start cat to catalog things. They're starting to do it in Hong Kong, like uh, Sifu Chu Sek Heng, who's a famous Hong Kong practitioner. Yeah. He's using mo he's using motion capture to yes, to capture all the famous Sifus doing yeah. all the different styles, so yeah. that whether White Crane Mantis Hong Kong Wing Chun or whatever, they're going to be digital records for the future, which I think is really great. We're working on a similar project here in New York, um, and and I think it's necessary. Unfortunately. It didn't exist in the times of Yip Man. So making claims about how Yip Man did the Tan Sao or Yip Man did this or whatever. Yeah. At this time, it, it, really, it doesn't bring the conversation forward. It's like we, we have what we have and we need and it either works or it doesn't work. And we need to improve it and pass it on in, in a way that, that it just gets better with any generation. And, and this is always my issue with the traditional Kung Fu people. They go, oh, so and so is a 13th generation student of Wing Chun, but the other guy is an 11th generation student of Wing Chun, so it must be much better. And I never understood, wait, so there's an assumption that every generation gets worse? Yeah. Because if, if Yip Man is the 11th generation, <laughs> yeah. then he must totally suck yeah. because he's yeah. not the yeah. second or first generation. So Absolutely. why do people assume if this argument is true 
that there hasn't been massive degradation by the time it made it to Yip Man, but only degradation since Yip Man, right? Yeah. And yeah, it, it's yeah. like their own their own argument actually defeats their, their argument. And and you don't have this problem in anything else. If you look at any MMA fighter, what generation of Brazilian jiu-jitsu are they? What generation are they from the founder, Carlos Gracie? Are they third, fourth, fifth? Nobody it doesn't cares. matter because they yeah. can either do it or they can't, right? Yeah. But in yeah. Wing Chun, yeah. this generation thing, they, they try to make it a conversation ender, and it, it, it doesn't even make sense, this assumption that you owe, that every generation gets worse. We, we now have to – in the 50s, they were only fighting Hong Kun and Choi Le Fat people, and that's not to say anything bad about Choi yeah. Le Fat or Hong Kun. But nowadays, my students ask me, well, what if somebody gives me a jab and a cross and then tries to take me down? So the the answers we have or the, the problems we now face are different from the ones they had in the 50s. Yeah. And it, it improves the conversation. And, and I refuse to believe that somebody from the 1950s can solve the problem. Some A Wing Chun person from the 1950s can solve the problem of being tackled better than some of our students can because we now have to deal with it on a, on a regular basis. And and that's not to say that their Wing Chun was worse, better, or whatever, but it's just we are solving different problems now. So the conversation is changing. Yeah, Gary Lum once said that uh, you know, look at look at an airplane. It's not the same as one hundred years ago, is it? Or two hundred years ago. You're not flying the same thing, are you? So things need to change. Things to things definitely need to evolve. Um or adapt, basically, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Very cool. I think that's uh, that about wraps it up. Uh, I had a very very nice uh, conversation, and uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me on here. This is uh, great that there are more uh, podcasts available. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, mean, uh, we I have our dudes of kung fu right podcast. Now, actually, yeah. Well. So, sorry to to interrupt. I was thinking about it because we we're talking about working uh, a lot more and contributing a lot more to the community. And it's so cool that you guys are doing a great job with um uh, with the dudes of kung fu podcast. Guys, if you want to laugh your ass off, just go ahead and uh, look for the podcast on iTunes or um, uh, check, uh, just Google it. Um, and, you know, I'm doing the podcast. We just, uh, I just started out and I, I honestly, you know, I thought, you know, is he going to do it? Is he going to do the interview or not? But it's really cool that we can exchange um, ideas like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on here. The, the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, for people who haven't heard it, by the way, is totally different than this one that I just did. Yeah. This was far more serious <laughs> and far more relevant. The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is basically me and my friend Sean Madigan, who's a Jeet Kune Do genius, yeah. just kind of rapping about, you know, the, the martial arts world, the Jeet Kune Do world, often complaining. And there's a lot of salty language and F-bombs. So it's it's not the typical kind of Wing Chun conversation you're used to hearing. Um, it's definitely a, a little bit more on the uh, irreverent side of things. But people like it. We have a good time doing it. And uh, we look forward to uh, doing some more serious topics in the future. But I think it's always going to be somewhat tongue-in-cheek and lighthearted. So there's a lot of swearing, basically, in the... Uh... Yeah, but podcast. mostly from Sean, not from me. <laughs> that's okay. That's that's actually going to be probably the main reason why people are going to check it out. Like, what is it with Definitely. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's <laughs> really and he's so he is so Brooklyn the way he talks. And I, I try to be the voice of reason. And he's like more like he's more my emotional side. And I try to be the more, you know, kind of rational side. But sometimes he makes more rational points than I do. So it's uh, it's all over the place. But it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you so much for for your time. and. Um, I'm looking forward very much to see more of your uh, content 
online and Thank and definitely seeing more of your contribution to uh to Wing Chun in the community. Awesome. Yeah, anybody can go to sifualexrichter.com and uh keep up with me, uh check me out on Facebook, Twitter and Absolutely. uh stay in touch. Awesome. Absolutely. Guys, go ahead and check uh, Alex's uh, his website. Add him on Facebook. Uh, where where else can people get in touch with you? Well, I have my public Facebook page, Sifu Alex Richter. Twitter, um, I'm actually very big. On, well, I'm not like for a Wing Chun guy, I'm big on, but I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So if people want to interact with me, Twitter's probably the best. My uh, public page, uh, Sifu Alex Richter, and we also have the page for the school. But um, SifuAlexRichter.com that's my personal website that, that keeps people up to date with all the projects I'm working on uh, especially people who are not training here in New York they just want to know the stuff I'm doing they should go to that website awesome guys thank you for thank you very much for uh, for listening I hope you've enjoyed this podcast let me know in the comment section what you've enjoyed the most and um, as usual, go to addictedtowingchun.com for some awesome free stuff. And if you want to join our online training community, there's a section, there's a page right there. And uh, yeah, if you've enjoyed this, share this with your friends. I'll see you next time.